Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Alex Kagan, who is a postdoctoral fellow in the Cancer, Aging, and Somatic Mutation Program at the Wellcome Sanger Institute. He investigates evolutionary processes in somatic tissue and also does scientific live sketching and illustrating, which we're going to talk about today, and I've seen him do on a number of occasions. If you don't follow him, you should check him out on Twitter. He's got an amazing combo of science and illustration right brain left brain going on as someone myself who's colorblind i can't draw to save my life i think this combo is pretty cool and we're going to go into detail on both of these today both alex's science as well as the inspiration and origin story behind his artistic talent so alex thanks so much and i really appreciate you taking the time today yeah pleasure thanks for having me i really look forward to talking about the the science and the art so in an interview in 2019, someone asked you about the most surprising discovery you've ever made. And at the time you said it's not published yet. It comes from a collaboration with the London Zoo. So it involves a lot of cool animals. And I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure that you're referring to the work you published not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago in Nature. Am I right about that? And if so, maybe you could tell us about this uh, surprising discovery. Uh, yeah, well, good research. Yeah, that, I was wondering what I'd said by then. Yeah, that, that, we, we must have been pretty excited because we've just got those results. Yeah, so we've, uh, for the last kind of five years, I've been doing this collaboration that's, yeah, it's been years in the making because it's required a number of technical developments to get there. But essentially, the question we wanted to ask was, we knew from work in humans that somatic mutation is a thing, that our cells are accumulating mutations as we age, and that this has a role we know in cancer, kind of these mutations can drive cancer. And also, potentially, it's been hypothesized they could have a role in aging, because could these mutations be like degrading the function of our cells as we age? And that's been a long, long-standing hypothesis, but there's not been any good data to test that. And then, you know, we have human data now that shows our cells are accumulating mutations kind of linearly with age, but that can't really address the question of what role do they have in aging. And we also know, if you look across the animal kingdom, there's a huge variation of species of different ages. So kind of obvious question is, if mutations are playing a role in aging, are species with longer lifespans accumulating those mutations at a slower rate? Is that kind of mutational clock ticking slower? And a kind of second amazing thing from switching from aging back to cancer is that some of these large mammalian species, based on everything we know about cancer in humans, like shouldn't be able to exist. Like if you model cancer risk in a whale that has quadrillions more cells than we do, some of these whale species should be getting cancer before they even reach one year of age, but they right. don't. So this is like this classic Petos paradox named after the statistician who observed it, that cancer rates kind of stay constant across the animal kingdom, whereas we would expect they would increase. And so one of the kind of resolutions to that paradox is, again, could it be that those larger, longer-lived species have are better at repairing their DNA, or for whatever reason, they're accumulating mutations at a slower rate? And so, kind of, we were wondering: are our cancer and aging two sides of this same coin, both caused by accumulation of mutation? And a kind of a great way to address that would be to look at these species with different lifespans and cancer risks, and just see at what rate are they acquiring mutations. But at the time, there was no real data on this because it's very technically challenging to measure and actually look at these somatic mutations it's only recently become possible in humans from healthy tissues so it's kind of yeah there's a whole technical development i can go into that now i guess or, yeah what what yeah, has yeah. what has changed yeah. technically between then and now that that you weren't able to do but now now you have been able to crack this code a little bit yeah so it's it's, it's been quite a fun journey so i was really lucky just as i was starting my postdoc at the sanger kind of starting to develop these techniques and what it comes down to is essentially developing this pipeline that integrates histology laser capture microdissection and low input genome sequencing. So the kind of the, the real challenge is that traditionally in cancer genetics, you could just sequence tumors and all of the cells in the tumor will kind of share that initial driver mutation. So you sequence like thousands of cells 
and you see the, the tumor driver mutations present in all of them. So you can easily distinguish it from sequencing errors, right. which are kind of very rare. But if you look at normal tissues, they're very polyclonal. You don't see the same mutation often across many cells. So to actually distinguish from sequencing error is a challenge. Mm-hmm. So the way we got around that was first, you kind of take a tissue sample, prepare it histologically or on a microscope slide, and then you use laser capture microdissection, which is like the most fun lab technique I've ever done because you're sitting there with a microscope with a high-powered laser beam on it, and you just kind of select out small groups of like a few hundred cells. And the hope is that then those cells, because they're close together, Right. will be kind of they'll be clonal they'll share the mutations and that kind of guides the tissues we look at so we we look for tissues in the body that are, probably have a clonal structure like i'll come to later these intestinal crypts and by micro dissecting them and sequencing them then we find the real somatic mutations at high enough frequency that we can distinguish them from artifacts so this was the pipeline that we used it was it had been done kind of a year before successfully in human i did some work looking at kind of building this atlas of somatic mutations in different tissues in the human body and so then we felt like okay we did it in human now we can try and move to other species and see if that works there. And then that, that led on to this challenge of, okay, well, how do we get tissue samples from other species? Because with humans, we, we can work with like, uh, the NHS and there are biobanks. When you want to look at like, just a range of different animal species of different body sizes and lifespans, that becomes more challenging. So then I had to set out on this quest to find people who had animals and get access to those tissues. What, what does it take to collaborate with, with a zoo or with the London yeah. Zoo? I, I assume they've got research teams if they're at a particular scale, but they may not do much genetics or, or maybe they do. You tell me, what, what does that look like? Do you go to them yeah. with this crazy idea and they say, yeah, sounds good to us? They, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Yeah. So London Zoo is great. They're part of this uh, Zoological Society of London. So they're like a research focus as well. There's a whole organization. There are researchers are kind of affiliated with that. Uh, they have these two pathologists there who we work really close with. So their their day job is kind of when an animal dies of natural causes, they'll do a kind of necropsy and figure out what was the cause of death. And they were very happy to kind of contribute. You know, it's great if these animals can also be put to use for research that could help with better conservation or understanding these animals better for better care in the future. So they were very helpful. And obviously, like they're the experts. But I, I wouldn't know if I had to collect the tissue samples, I wouldn't even know where to look <laughs> in the animal. Oh. So so they they're great and they collect the samples for us little kind of small tissue biopsies, send them to the thanger, and then we start this whole pipeline. But again, a challenge was we wanted species with very different lifespans. And animals, you know, like cetaceans, elephants, they don't die every day. The whole point when we look at them is because they live a long time. And we don't want to harm any animals. We just want to wait for them to die of natural causes. They kind of had to reach, like cast a wide net of potential collaborators to see what tissues are available. There's a few challenges, really. So one, some of these animals live a long time. And two, because we want to know what's their mutation rate, we kind of get when you sequence them, you count X number of mutations. But to know the rate, you have to know how old the animal was when it died. And wild animals don't walk around with like a birth tag on them. So you zoo animals are great for that. You have them. We really wanted, you know, blue whales or sperm whales in this study because they're the classic kind of why don't these animals get cancer species? But unfortunately, we couldn't, as of yet, we haven't found samples where we know the age. We're currently investigating that. There are like these kind of esoteric methods for trying to estimate age based on tooth wear. Right. People people have told me there's a there's a earwax method for whales. So it's like tree rings. They deposit wax, and you get this like whole like bit like or like an ice core. You can just pull out of the ear canal and try and age it. Uh, but then other people tell me that's not so reliable, which I can believe. You've got World War Two era earwax in there that uh, that you exactly. can somehow date. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just as an aside, it it is amazing like how we know how old some of these species get. Like how who how, how do people know that a, a whale lived 200 years? Right. And like for bowhead whale, they, they kind of have a maximum age estimate based on a harpoon that was found in a whale. And they knew this particular style of 
harpoon. It's called like a bomb lance because it had explosives in it. It would go into the whale and then explode. It was only made for like five years and like the eight, sometime in like the 1800s. And so finally that, they knew this whale had been swimming around for X number of years. And it was probably right. an adult at the time it was hunted. So yeah, it's like, it's kind of mind blowing how old some of these animals can get. So yeah, we've been through tried so to get you know, it together. Yeah, we pieced it together. We worked with um, like Cambridge University have a population of naked mole rats who are like, um, they're like superstars or rock star animals for cancer and aging research. But people don't know about them. They're yeah, like the tell, tell us about the naked yeah. mole rats. Why? I, this was one of my questions. Why are they, yeah. why are they so special and beloved yeah. in the cancer and aging community? They're like beloved in a lot of communities because they're such weird animals. They're like in any way you look at them, they're kind of different. They're called a naked mole rat, but they're not a, apparently they're not a rat or naked truly. Like they, they have tiny, like really weird name, but they are mostly hairless. They look like a cocktail sausage with teeth is kind of what experts in the field tell me. Uh, they're eusocial. So they have a queen, which is really unusual for mammals. There's like a, a reproductive queen and workers because they kind of, they live in Africa and they burrow underground. So another kind of rare thing, unusual thing about them. But in cancer and aging, they're fascinating because again, size of a large mouse, most mice live about three years. These, these animals can live about 27 years. They have an extraordinary long lifespan for a rodent uh, and hardly ever get cancer. So for a long time, it was thought they just didn't get cancer at all. But people have been studying so many of them for so long now. You do see like there's like two or three reported cases of huh. tumors developing, but it's extremely rare and so, so low that they must have some mechanisms of, of resistance. And again, the, the reason they're in Cambridge isn't even to do with any of that. It's, it's for a group in pharmacology who studies the fact that they lack certain pain receptors. So they, right. I think partly because they live underground in this kind of very CO2 rich, very cramped environment that they've kind of lost some of the, to make their life a bit more pleasant. They don't detect all of the discomfort that you would feel if you were living that way. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, so we got some samples from these guys. So it, it, all in all, we got about, we had 16 species including human so 15 other right. mammal species with a range of, of body sizes and lifespans and and naked mole rat was really key species for us as well because our aim was to kind of disentangle okay we're going to look at mutation rates and we want to see if there is variation what's explaining that and like is it body size or lifespan were kind of two key traits but most mammals they get bigger and they live longer so naked right. mole rat was quite nice to disentangle that you've got a species that lives a long time but it's still very small so yeah that was kind of that was our data set so the the biggest the biggest mammal in the study was was that the elephant. Uh, we didn't. There was giraffe. So again, uh, even elephant. We we. We're, I can get when we'll get onto it later. But now it's like we're now we're in a great space of getting all these new tissue samples. But at the time, the largest we had was giraffe. We still had about forty thousand fold variation in body span from wow. mouse to giraffe. So there's still enormous variation there. And and what were some of the examples of animals in between? So the mouse of the small end, giraffe yeah. and large. What what were some of the? I won't yeah, ask you so, to name all sixteen. Oh, no. you can. <laughs> yeah, I can try. <laughs> Uh, well, I, the most memorable for me was the um, Siberian tiger because that was the first sample we processed. Wow. That was kind of that's a that's a large animal. We had African lion, we have horse, ring-tailed lemur, so it's a primate, wow. which was interesting as well. A, a whole range. Uh, we do have one cetacean, the harbor porpoise, but it's a, it's a small one. It's kind of the smallest cetacean. So it's like a small dolphin. And then we had a yeah, a whole range of like other rodents. We had rat as well, ferret, rabbit for the kind of shorter end. We we really wanted to get a breadth of lifespan. Yes. It comes out, most mammals, it seems, live between, you know, a few years to 20 years. You get a lot of species in that range. And then it's really a challenge to get the, the older species. So ha with, with the inclusion of the naked mole rat, you could mm. deconvolute the lifespan and size. So what, what did you find there? And, yeah. uh, and then after that, I, I do want to come back to the intestinal crypts and actually how you did the measurement of the mutation rate. I think it's quite a cool method. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll jump to the main findings. So what we, what we found when we looked at mutation rates across these species was 
first of all, there was there was enormous variation in mutation, right? So, so within like uh, human cells, for example, there's also a range of mutation rates depending on what cell you look at. But for the cells we were looking at, the intestinal crypts in human, you get about 50, just under 50 mutations a year, which is just a, in itself is an extraordinary low number, I would say, because these cells divide kind of once a week. Every time they divide, they have to copy about six billion base pairs of DNA. Wow. And what this tells us is for every six billion base pairs they copy, yeah, they're making kind of just under one error. So wow. it's remarkably low. But because we live so long in a human, by the end of your lifespan, you have about 3,200 mutations in these cells. Whereas when we looked at mouse, we found they were, they're getting way more mutations here, like 800, the massive number. And you see this variation from kind of 50 mutations per year in humans, 800 in mouse. And then what we found that was kind of remarkable is then if you kind of look what's explaining this, it really seems that most of the variance is explained by lifespan. So 82% of the variance. So essentially all of these animals, despite having very different mutation rates and mutational clocks are ticking at different speeds, there's some kind of evolutionary constraint there because all the mammals are ending their lifespan with approximately 3,200 mutations, wow. which is just like, yeah, we, we, we were kind of blown away by that. We thought it'd be exciting if there was some kind of relationship to body size or lifespan. But it really seems that it's lifespan that explains all the variants. If once you correct the lifespan, you don't see an additional effect of body size. And kind of uh, like a nice way, I think, of like driving this point home is if you look at the naked mole rat again in the giraffe, two species that vary like tens of thousand fold in body size, but they live almost the exact same lifespan. And their mutation rate is almost exactly the same. It's really, wow. it's really the mutation rate that seems to somehow be connected to lifespan. I'm sure you've gone through all kinds of potential explanations. The the thing that popped to my mind is if the mutation rate in say the whale or the giraffe or the elephant, one of these long-lived gigantic species, if it was higher, then to your point earlier, you'd get cancer earlier, you might get it before reproductive age. That's maybe one of the hypotheses. What did you what were you exploring going into this and do you have a sense of of why there seems to be this like the yeah. ceiling of how many mutations an organism can tolerate. Yeah, I mean that's really the um the million dollar question. So we yeah, we have we put a lot of thought into the what what this could mean for aging and cancer and and I, if people are interested we have a whole supplementary note in the in the paper about it. But kind of um what we think is probably unlikely is the classical view of mutation aging is the somatic theory of aging that just every cell is independently accumulating mutations and it they function less well as because you're just kind of destroying the blueprint of your DNA, which tells your cells how to behave. But this number of like 3,200 mutations, if you look at how many of those are actually encoding regions of the genome, it's uh, only a handful. And we think it's unlikely that just a handful of these mutations could could kind of really be explaining aging, which we think is anyway a multifactorial process. But even so, like, could just a handful of mutations really be causing aging in each cell? So we think what our kind of working hypothesis at the moment is that what might be happening is it's not that every single cell is kind of running itself down with these mutations, but maybe it's just a few cells in each tissue do happen to get these mutations that will kind of boost the cell's fitness. They'll, that cell will then start to trigger a proliferation, kind of no longer doing the role it's meant to do in the cell and start to spread a bit like the early stages of cancer. So what could be happening as you age is a few cells start to colonize the tissue. And we know this is happening from studies in humans. You do get these clonal expansions in our, of certain cells in our tissue as we age, which is starting to proliferate. And they may be kind of increasing their fitness at the cost of your organ function. So your organs may function less well over time because like these small cells are slowly spreading and taking over. That's our hypothesis. We, we, what, we, what we lack is kind of, we know these clonal expansions occur, but we don't know, are they really affecting tissue function yet? Because we haven't had the, the ways to measure that yet. So kind of future aim is to kind of understand, are these processes that are happening in our body as we age driven by mutation? 
deteriorating the ability of our cells or organism to function. How would you test something like that? Do you have a sense? Yeah, well, it, I guess there's lots of different ways. What would be really nice is we have, we're getting lots of molecular data, gene- genetic data. What would be really nice is to get some phenotype data on tissue function. So, uh, you know, there are these great kind of organoid models that are being developed, kind of where you can grow skin epithelia in a dish, for example. You could then look, try trigger these clonal expansions and then just try and measure. And I guess the measurements you would take would vary depending on the tissue. But, you know, processes, out readouts that show that the tissue is functioning normally, are they you know, are they decreased? Are they negatively affected by these clonal expansions? Is there some connection there between the molecular and the and the output function? But I think we're still, we're still away from getting there. But that's kind of I think the direction where yeah. we're going. Fascinating. And I, and I wanted to go back to the intestinal crypts because I, I think this yeah. is a it's a very yeah. um it's an elegant way of mm-hmm. studying this. I wonder if you could tell a little bit about the the process what it takes to do that and and how you're yeah. able to. I guess this is part of the yeah. laser micro dissection exactly yeah story. So yeah, I'll I'll, I'll let you talk about that piece of the puzzle. Yeah, exactly. So we, we knew for this study, because the mutation rates vary from cell type, we wanted one particular cell type to look at that was comparable across mammals. And we picked these uh, intestinal crypts. For anyone who doesn't know, they're kind of these U-shaped structures that lie in the intestinal epithelium in our gut. And what's great about them is one, you can see them under the microscopes. You can be like, there's one crypt, I can cut it out. But two, they're, they're just great for calling somatic mutations because the base of each crypt has a stem cell population. And over time, one of these stem cells kind of drifts to take over the population of stem cells and they divide every week. So you have these transient cells that are daughters of the stem cell that line each individual crypt. So if you cut them out and sequence them, every single cell in that crypt will share the mutations that have been accumulating in that stem cell. So what you're really getting is kind of a single cell dramatic mutation rate estimate but you get the chance to see it in like a few hundred cells, which lets us then distinguish the true somatic cells from the errors. So they can be kind of just little perfect units you can cut out. And each one will kind of have been accumulating its own different mutations. So the idea was like in a tiger, you cut out five separate crypts, sequence them, and each one will have different mutations, but the number of mutations is the same across all the crypts. You can kind of, so it kind of, again, validates that what you're seeing are true somatic mutations. Very cool. And, and by the way, everybody, if uh, if you're struggling to visualize this, or if you want to go in, in more detail on Alex's Twitter at ATJ Kagan, A-T-J-C-A-G-A-N, uh, there's a really great tweet thread, tweetorial that goes through main figures of the paper. Beautiful. I guess that was, a, was that the cover of uh, of Nature that you got? This beautiful clock. Did you draw that? Did somebody else draw that? No, I drew that one. That was a lot of fun. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. uh, so yeah, there's a, there's a 24th uh, tweet thread that goes through with beautiful illustrations, pictures of the figures. You can see all of this in action, and I think it's really worth taking a look because it's a it's a beautiful piece of work, and uh, and will will probably help to close the loop if you're struggling to envision crypts and and it's also got a list of the sixteen animals on there if you want to go back and see the the is it the saber tooth tiger? It's no saber tooth tiger. Is that the first one that you sequenced? Uh, a Siberian tiger. Siberian tiger. Saber tooth tigers are extinct for many. Yeah, many years. we we have we haven't done ancient DNA. I want to try and combine it ancient DNA one day to do a kind of look at somatic mutation in saber yes. tooth. That would be, be a cool project. Looking back on the last five years, what did you learn from like taking the science away from it? This <laughs> must have involved like loads of different collaborators. Uh, a lot, the science has changed a lot in the five years. New yeah. new techniques. Yeah. What what has that been like? Just pushing a project like this for. For almost five years, yeah. it sounds like uh... it's been it's been a really fun journey. I think I've got really lucky that like somatic evolution, I think, is like exploding as a field because it just helps us address so many longstanding questions about cancer, about aging, and age related diseases, which you know, have kind of been 
a bit intransigent to study. You know, we've been very good at, I would say we've been much better at treating infectious disease than we have these kind of age-associated disorders. Obviously, in the kind of um, biotech space, there's a lot of interest in aging now. Uh, and I think these tools have just, it's kind of, it's just a great time to be doing this kind of biology because there, there are these theories that have been around for decades or, or longer about causes of aging. And now we actually have ways we can generate data to actually quantify and address these different causes. And, it, you know, somatic mutation is part of it. There's also people working more directly on kind of epigenetics or protein turnover, all these other aspects of aging. And just kind of being, I think we're now at this stage where we're close to being kind of pieced together and kind of solve this mystery of what are those causes of aging that have, it's like a great biological mystery that's been around so long. And it seems like it's accelerating the technological developments. Because when I started, we were just like, can we call somatic mutations in healthy tissue? Right. And now it's more like, okay, which, which cell do we want to look at? Not just looking at mutations, we're now also looking at these kind of clonal expansions and other kind of selective processes. So I feel like, it's like when you've just got a, you've just developed a boat and there's a whole landscape in front of you. Now you just have to decide which way you're going to sail. And there's just so many places we can start to look at. So the problem really is, is more now picking like one of the key projects to look at because there's so much unexplored space and that was that's certainly a growing challenge with uh, the species because now we know that we can look at spider mutation across species we looked at 16 there's a lot more species out there yes. and beyond mammals things get if you want to look at aging there's so many good species one could look at that either you know live for hundreds of years or they're like quote unquote immortal so there's just like there's so much space where we just want to generate that basic data that will help us understand these processes in such a higher resolution what what are some of the quote unquote immortal? Organisms? Yeah, so yeah, well, obviously I've, I've been looking at recently species to collaborate, find collaborators for, and, and every time I see a species that's called immortal something, I obviously have to look it up because if you're interested in aging, you, you want to yeah, look you, at these. You gotta you gotta at least yeah. give it a give it a look. Exactly. So there's uh, the ones I'm aware of. Maybe people people probably call, if they know others, contact me on Twitter. But there's the immortal hydra, which is like this tiny microscopic organism that lives in fresh water, and we're collaborating with a group at UC Berkeley that that cultures these. They're called immortal. I think it's based on the fact some guy, it's a scientist, kind of followed, kept them on his like window shelf for like 20 years and never saw one die of old age. And they, every 20 days, they renew all the cells in their body. So they're constantly turning over cells. And yet they have wow. this amazing ability to just keep on doing that. Yeah, it's kind of based on our kind of results from this paper, you would expect an immortal organism like that would never accumulate a somatic mutation. It would have like an insanely high fidelity DNA repair process. But it's hard to imagine this microscopic organism. This kind of like, it's so thin. I think its whole body is exposed to UV light. Yes. Not, not being overwhelmed with mutations. So we really want to sequence that and understand what's going on there. And that will help us understand that we hope that all the data we're collecting in this kind of new perspective. There's also, a, uh, there's an immortal jellyfish. So I, th I think it's marine organisms where there's a lot of right. cool stuff going on. Yeah. And so next week we're getting our delivery of a Greenland shark from the cetacean stranding investigation program in the UK. So this is the longest wow. lived vertebrate species estimates that it can live up to 500 years. But we're oh starting to gosh. get into some really interesting species for the aging research. So that, so in, in this, are, are you going to be able to get a sense of the shark, the Greenland sharks mutation rate from this data? Hopefully that's, that's the plan. Yeah. And kind of the cool thing that motivates us from this, the recent research is that human was the oldest species we looked at but what it would suggest is that these longer lived species should have even better dna repair or that's what we hypothesize and we do and so if we can start to study those species and potentially understand what are the mechanisms by which they're better able to repair their genome and kind of reduce their cancer rate one day could you ever take that knowledge and use that for kind of developing therapeutics or ways to yes. ultimately increase our health span 
that's kind of the, that's one of the one of the like end picture goals. Yeah, so I, that's that's one of the things I was going to ask next. And I think you have uh, you have a slide in your tweet thread about TP fifty three and mm-hmm. elephants. What what are some of the ways that organisms figure out? Is it is it about a lower mutation rate, or is it about DNA error correction, or or is it a mix of both? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think we're still trying to figure that out. Yeah, so part, obviously part of our results they they suggest that this reduced mutation rate is probably part of the story for reducing cancer risk. If you have less mutations, it can take longer to knock out those genes that, that cause tumor formation. But because we don't see this additional effect of body size, it suggests those larger species must have additional mechanisms as well. And as you just as you mentioned, like yeah, there's some great research on some of these species like elephants, where elephants, it seems, well, in humans, you have two copies of this gene TP53. When you both get knocked out, it's normally bad news. It's normally an initiation step for cancer because it dysregulates apoptosis among a number of other things. And it seems elephants have evolved like 40 copies of this gene. So one hypothesis is that, yeah, and it's, and it's, um, I think the number of those genes increases if you look at different elephant species of different body sizes. So there's a nice correlation there. So the hypothesis is it's like having extra batteries, you know, like backups. It's just going to take longer for them all to be knocked out. So if you combine slower mutation rate and more copies of those driver genes, that seems to be, at least in the elephant, one of the ways that they've reduced cancer risk. But you don't see TP53 expansions, as far as I know, in a lot of other large-bodied species. So it kind of suggests, and it may be not surprising, that evolution has found different solutions depending on which trajectory you go by, which is, again, really motivating that it's worth looking at all of these different large-bodied species because each one may have a different mechanism for reducing cancer risk, and maybe one of them is going to be much more easy to apply in a human context and others. So it's it's, so it's like an untapped goldmine, potentially, essentially, for, for discovery. Yeah, that's fascinating. I want to take another trip down memory lane because I was doing I was doing some background research on this, as obviously, as you can tell. And uh, I found another article from June 2018 where you went on a trip to Chernobyl, which is a place that most cancer and aging researchers know a lot about but stay pretty far away from. Uh, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but a short trip is probably not a health risk, right? But what, what did you do there? Yeah. What was the purpose behind your Chernobyl? Exactly. exactly. Well, that's, um, yeah, that's kind of a, another kind of bizarre tangent of cancer research it was it was looking at transmissible cancers and i'll kind of explain why this landed up going to chernobyl so there's a researcher liz murchison at university of cambridge who specializes in these uh, transmissible cancers so in humans cancers aren't transmissible really you you, you have a cancer but it, it doesn't spread to someone else because the immune system recognizes it as foreign but in tasmanian devils and in domestic dogs cancers manage to become transmissible there's these strains of for dog it's a um it's a sexually transmitted cancer, so it's a tumor that spreads during sexual contact. And for Tasmanian devils, it's on their faces. And they're, they're a species that fights a lot, and they're kind of right. snarling and biting, and it transmits that way. And it's still kind of a mystery why, in these species, it's able to do that. Why doesn't the immune system recognize it? Kind of ongoing field of research. But anyway, for the, for the dogs, this is found in kind of stray dog populations around the world. And they're in the process of just trying to collect samples, because you can you can map it like a phylogenetic tree, the way it's spread. In, in some kind of weird right. way, these these tumor cells for the dog are like the oldest living dog in the world. It's like a 10,000-year-old dog cell that's become a kind of immortal cancer. And you can kind of look at how it's spread and, and sequence it and track it that way. And so Liz Murchison was interested in, uh, if you go somewhere like Chernobyl, where there maybe is radiation and it's going to be mutating faster, will that kind of have accelerated the evolution of the cancer? Because another weird thing about these transmissible cancers is they tend to have a very low mutation rate compared to most cancers, which are not often become hypermutators. This kind of these long, uh, long-lived transmissible cancers have kind of stabilized and slowed their mutation rate, which might be one of the ways that they can survive for so long without their genome just imploding. Interesting idea that maybe in Chernobyl, 
the radiation will have caused faster evolution and then we could learn some things from that. Yeah, so I went out there. I think the person who was going to go couldn't make it anymore. So I thought it sounded like an interesting trip. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah. Totally random question that I should know the answer to, but I don't. Do non-mammalian animals get cancer? Where Where is cancer in the tree of life? That, that's where a good question. Stop? Where does it start? Yeah. So uh, um, I think you know, the, the, the kind of claim is that cancer is wherever there's multicellular organisms, you should get cancer because it's kind of the breakdown of multicellularity. I, don't, I mean, no one looks in every single species, but I think you, invertebrates get it in London. Yeah. Like insects get it. I think almost any species you look at, they will, you'll find growths. Well, I guess... It's hard to be sure those are cancers without sequencing them. Like, yeah. like, like often in trees, you get these growths, but we think they're not actually cancers. They're induced by a parasite, you know, to stimulate growth. So theoretically, I think any multicellular organism should be at risk of cancer because it's really, it's almost like a, you can think of it as almost a bit like a reversion to unicellularity. It's a cell that starts to break. The, every cell has these rules how to cooperate in the body. And when they start to break down and right. the cell becomes, you know, quote unquote, selfish, um, there's, a, there's a new book by Kat Arney called The Rebel Cell, which is kind of a, a popular science book all about cancer evolution. And you can kind of think of it that way. It's these cells that go rogue. And so why shouldn't that happen in any multicellular organism? If you get the right mutations that break down those genes that are regulating cooperation, it's kind of it's kind of the risk that you have of being a multicellular organism. Yeah, fascinating. And yeah. if anyone is interested in Rebel Cell, Kat came on to this podcast in a long time ago, episode 46, right when the book came out. So you can hear oh, cool. uh, you can hear straight from Kat a couple of weeks after release. And I and I read the she sent me a copy of it prior to the episode. Uh, and I and I highly recommend it to everybody. It's a really um fascinating read. I want to hear about when you first discovered your talent for illustration and then also when you first applied it. Which came first, the illustration or the science, uh, and, and yeah. when did the two worlds collide? Yeah, that's a good, good question. I think I think generally the illustration came first. So I was um, at school. I loved biology, but then ironically, I, I got, when I was like fifteen, I got put off by genetics. <laughs> I loved animal. I loved animal behavior, and then suddenly I went from animal behavior and like, oh, I loved all of this, like looking at images of like cheetahs on the savannah, and then it switched to Punnett squares and like equations, <laughs> and I was like, this isn't quite what I was into. <laughs> so like, I ended up kind of focusing more on the humanities and. My mom is like a set designer, illustrator type person. So I've always been around that and more encouraged with that. And, and yeah, so I've, I went down a humanities route, studied anthropology at university, and I wanted to get into kind of social anthropology and understanding. I was still interested in diversity and differences, but I was looking from the kind of more human behavioral perspective. But, but during that course, you had to take modules in genetics and you like to look at biological anthropology. And then I kind of rediscovered my passion for that and and again it was at the time when next generation sequencing was just emerging so again it was very exciting that suddenly we were learning about you know neanderthals and human evolution uh and so I kind of got back into it that way but kept kind of kept going with sketching but they were two they were two separate paths i never thought about linking the yeah. illustration with the science so that came about during my phd i went to a, a symposia smbe meet like a, a systems for molecular biology and evolution meeting and, and again, Twitter was just taking off and people, and I had, a, I had an iPad mini and I saw these people like you and Bernie type, like tweeting away, really good, like coverage of the meeting. I was like, oh, how could I do that? But I, th I thought, no, there's already these people doing these great Twitter threads. But, and I realized they were always, like, you have a thread because you're going to do 140 characters per tweet at the time, but you can get it, you can completely cheat by sharing an image. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I was, I was taking my notes, just like doodling. And it, like, if you, I don't, it would probably take hours. If you scroll all the way back to the beginning of my Twitter, there are, the first images must be there and they were like terrible it was just like i'd write like maybe the name of the talk and draw and, like, a little something and, and it's a little something like just like a, a little thing of their face or a little like a little picture of the animal they're working on uh, and but then people liked them enough that i was like oh this you know this likes i'll keep doing this 
And it kind of evolved that way. And I think also Twitter is kind of a, a useful as like an evolutionary mechanism because you can kind of see how many likes things get. You kind of put, okay, this is the kind of content people enjoy. And it kind of just evolved that way. And yeah, and I also have a terrible attention span and, <laughs> and, and sketching really keeps me, helps focused, you, but you can't, yeah, it helps me think, it helps my mind from drifting. So I found it really invaluable. I was actually recording and understanding more from the conferences than I would have if I wasn't sketching and, and then just sharing them is so easy, right? You just click share on an iPad and it's out there. So I thought, why not share it as well? It's like the ultimate badge of honor when when you get drawn by Alex Kagan at a conference. I there was a there, there it still is this way, but I remember there was a period of time in like 20, 2018, 2019 where people were just hoping that their talk would get picked up and and a beautiful illustration was drawn. So it, it I think it's an amazing thing. You're the point about Twitter is a really good one because it's for a long time it wasn't a great place for visual learners if you wanted to read a tweet yeah. thread that was great but a picture is worth a thousand words sometimes no absolutely i, I think um like more, it's more recently like the evolution of tutorials has been great too like again so few people people are so busy like often don't have the time to read the paper you get a lot more with i think with a good tutorial you get so much more exposure and even people who are, will read the paper having like a clear it's like a long visual graphical abstract it just helps yep. people to immediately get the, the take-home messages and to share it quickly with other people in a much faster way than if you just shared the paper that takes a long time for people to how many people ever read beyond the abstract anyway so actually to have that format yeah. i find really useful for, for people to engage with and and, to, and as long as they're getting the key messages that that way it's not it's great if everyone can go read the paper but that's just unrealistic so at least yeah. if you can deliver the message there in a, in a clearer way than just in an abstract i think it's a really useful medium for sharing new results have you been playing around with Midjourney or Dolly or any of these fun, fun new tools? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm waiting until I can just give one all of my illustrations and then just get it to immediately. I'm sure it's not far away when they'll be out live feeding me. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's, it's amazing what they're doing. I'm kind of, I guess a lot of illustrators are nervous. Uh, I'm quite, I'm kind of excited to see where it goes. Like there's just so much potential there. And I think anything, there's, a, there's two sides to it, right? You want to make sure that creators and illustrators still have employment and things they can do, yeah. but also the potential now for people to just have these tools for people who aren't into illustration, who can't afford an illustrator to help visualize research. I'm just really big on science visualization and using that as a tool yes. for communication. I think there's just so much potential we can't even imagine now for how that's going to be able to help people to communicate scientific ideas and, and make them more compelling. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. If we separate the like, there's there's clear copyright challenges, and yeah. and uh, we need to figure out how to not have the tools like completely rip off somebody's style. Yeah, without you know without the right credit. But on the flip side, I think it 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 democratizes access to the tools in a really interesting way. Where if you can describe what you want to be drawn, you don't need to be able to do it yourself. Hopefully, the the machine can get you 90% of the way there. But I think I think there's always going to be space for people who have clear artistic talents to to tweak and and make breakthroughs, right? It's I think these tools are good at synthesizing, but uh, yeah. not so good at at discovery yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I hope that it'll just be a powerful tool that'll just enable a lot more great science visualization. I think you're really onto something with that. And and I love it when great scientists like you are also equally committed to creating digestible formats for for people to understand what you're doing because uh there's too much good science that only lives in the small corner of the universe that has the time and and uh background to read the paper so it's really great when you can spend the time to distill it out for everybody yeah no yeah i, I wish I, I just wish more people and i think more people are doing it but i just hope it becomes more yeah. popular because it's yeah again like for yeah for areas i'm not an expert in Having things like visual tutorials or any kind of visualizations, just I'm, I'm definitely a visual thinker or learner. So it just helps me so much. 
and you can you can condense so much information in a good tutorial so well yes big fan yeah i tell everybody to go follow dr vera as well if we can combine his oh, yeah. tutorial uh yeah. skills with your illustrations yeah. you guys will be yeah. unstoppable yeah. Yeah. that'd be awesome just as a final closing question here i wanted to pick your brain about uh the tree of life study and studies i think there are a couple going on around the world but for those who aren't familiar there's uh at least the one i know of at the sanger there's an incredible study going on to sequence i think it's more than 100 species across the tree of life to to i think get at some of the questions you were pointing out earlier not just in cancer and aging but at a very fundamental level what 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 do all the animals and organisms in the world around us uh, what does their genetic blueprint look like and and what can we learn about that both from fundamental science but also applications to health or i imagine you must be excited about that but what are you excited about what is what is that going to enable and and allow us to do in the next couple of years yes yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited about that and that's one of the great things about being at the sanger that the kind of the, so there's the there the tree of life program and within that the darwin tree of life project which aims to sequence every eukaryote species in the uk and there's initiatives around the world doing similar things so yeah in the next couple wow. of years or de decades should be a reference genome for every multicellular organism on the planet which is kind of mind-blowing um, and yeah, what that does for us is, so we, I mentioned this intestinal crypts and how we had to look for these clonal units. So now we have a new method, duplex sequencing based called NanoSeq that's so accurate, we can sequence, it doesn't have to be a clonal unit anymore, we can sequence at single molecule level. Mm. So we have the ability, now we can look at any cell type and combining that with the tree of life programs, making reference genomes, we're in this position for the first time where we can look at any cell type in any species on the planet. And so, yeah, just again, it opens up this whole unexplored landscape where we're not limited by, we used to be limited, like you have to look at human laboratory mouse or C. elegans, Drosophila. Now we're not limited by those. And those species are great, but for so many biological questions, they're not the, uh, if you were going, if you were picking a model organism, you wouldn't say, okay, I want mouse. There's so many other species there that might be better. And now we can access them and we can look at them and we can use the, all the tools of human somatic mutation studies and apply them to pretty soon any species. So that's just, gonna, I think it's going to lead to so many new cool discoveries. Amazing. Uh, well, Alex, thank you. I really appreciate all of the the amazing work that you've done on this paper, taking the time to explain it to us. And and I would really encourage everybody to go follow Alex on Twitter. A lot of good stuff. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. It's been great to chat about. And thanks everybody for listening. As always, we really appreciate if you could share the podcast with a friend or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>